Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity, a special series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to learn more about world Christianity as a world phenomenon and an emerging field, placing increased attention on Christianity's local manifestations, how Christianity takes form and shapes societies that were previously not Christian, and how Christianity was received and expressed through the indigenous customs, cultures, and traditions. We seek to understand how Christian communities embody historical and cultural experiences, both globally and locally. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi, from Princeton Theological Seminary. Today, I'm here to talk with Professor Kale Yu, the author of Understanding Korean Christianity, Grassroot Perspectives on Causes, Culture, and responses published by WIF and Stock Publishers in 2019. KLU is an adjunct professor of Christianity at High Point University in the Department of Religion. He enjoys examining issues of cultural adaptation for Christian communities across generations, and his research includes world Christianity, church history, cross-cultural evangelism, and East Asian and Asian American Christianity. Professor Yu has taught courses on Introduction to Christianity, History of Christianity, and Introduction to Christian Ministry. He is also the winner of various prestigious awards from the Florence Ellen Bell Scholar Award from Drew University and the Stoy Fund for Missions Research from Yale Divinity School and the Study of American Evangelicals. Diversity of American Evangelicalism grant from Wheaton College. He has published various articles, starting from issues on Protestant missions in late 19th and early 20th century Korea, American missionaries and Korean independence movement in the early 20th century, and persecution in the development of Korean Christianity. His work can be found in multiple journals, that which includes the International Review of Missions, Journal of Religion, Race, and Ethnicity, Studies in World Christianity, Journal of Asian and Asian American Theology, and the International Journal of Korean Studies. And Kale is also an ordained clergy in the United Methodist Church. His monograph, Understanding Korean Christianity, Grassroots Perspectives on Causes, Culture, and Response, takes us on a journey of taking a closer look into the unique character of Korean Christianity. In reflecting on the surprising growth of Christianity in Korea, Kale asks in this book, where did this extraordinary response to Christianity come from? What led Koreans to embrace Christianity in such fashion? Did Christianity stir something dormant in Korean culture? For those that might be unfamiliar with Korean Christianity, Kale is a guide in providing an overall picture of how Christianity was received in Korea, highlighting particular aspects of Korean Christianity, that which includes its Confucian context, 
orthodoxy and moral perfection, resilience and persecution, education, shamanism, the Korean Bible woman, and his nationalistic orientation as well. In short, he provides an in-depth analysis of the increasing diversification of Korean churches. So welcome, Kale, to New Books in World Christianity, and thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your book. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. It's it's wonderful that you can join us this today. Um, I wonder if you could start off us today by telling us a few words about yourself. That is, where did you grow up, where you went to school, and how you became interested in your field of study. And you can also mention any influential mentors you might have had along the way as well. Sure, thank you. Um, I was seven years old uh, when my family uh, immigrated to Queens in New York City. After a few years, uh, we moved to Philadelphia, where I finished uh, middle and high school. Uh, After high school, uh, I went to Clark University, where I majored in East Asian history and ancient Greek philosophy. And uh, during college, I studied abroad for two years in Japan and Korea. And after college, I went to Columbia University where my uh, master's thesis was on Korean Neo-Confucianism with uh, Ted DeBarry, who was a leading scholar on the subject of uh, Neo-Confucianism or Confucianism in general. And after Columbia, I went to Princeton Theological Seminary where I studied uh, mission history with uh, Andrew Walls. Then I returned to Columbia to complete my PhD Uh, focusing on uh, Asian American Christianity. And my advisors there were uh, Douglas Sloan and Robbie McClintock. And uh, I've been a professor and pastor, sometimes doing both at the same time. Uh, Last year was my 20th year in local church ministry. Uh, I've been a pastor in New York City, upstate New York, um, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and my last church was a small uh, rural church in North Carolina. Wow, thank you so much for this opportunity to get to know you better. I know um, as um, a PhD student myself, you know, we wear many hats, but um, just hearing how, you know, you progress in your studies as well and in your ministry, it's it's fascinating that um, uh, you've been able to um, do everything so well and so eloquently as well. So thank you for uh, this opportunity to get to know you better. Well, I don't know if I've done all things very well, but I've been trying. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I would like to invite you now to tell us a little bit about how you came to write um, your book, Understanding Korean Christianity. Um, How the idea developed? uh, What was your research process like? Um, What archives uh, did you turn to? And overall, how your writing experience was? Yes, uh, thank you. Um, uh, I think uh, Korean Christianity um, has been a mystery to people. Uh, The way in which uh, Koreans uh, drew to Christianity was uh, unusual and remarkable. And I think uh, my book, Understanding Korean Christianity, is an attempt to answer that question. Why did Koreans embrace Christianity with so much enthusiasm? And um, in answering that question, uh, my years at uh, Columbia's East Asian Studies program uh, really helped me point me in the right direction. 
there I um, read texts in classical Chinese, uh, learned from some of the brightest minds in the field, and and worked uh, with Ted DeBerry, who was a preeminent scholar on Confucianism. And um, I discovered the length to which Koreans undertook the Confucian transformation. And it was quite interesting. I, I cannot think of another civilization in world history that sought to conform every aspect of society, uh, including government, religion, culture, social customs, uh, geography, just about every uh, thing in society that uh, these uh, Korean confusion tried to apply and conform uh, Korea to that ideology or philosophy. And my thesis was uh, based on uh, Jung Do-jan, uh, one of the architects of uh, Joseon Dynasty, and the way he basically took the Confucian transformation to another level. Uh, and uh, he really uh, tried to institute and instill the orthodox version of Neo-Confucianism uh, in Korea uh, from the 14th century. And so uh, my archival research and background in East Asian studies uh, was really helpful because it gave me insight into the historical and philosophical foundations uh, that layered uh, a civilization. And in seminaries, you don't really learn that. Uh, as seminaries are, are more, generally speaking, more prescriptive in their pedagogy, uh, in training students in approaches, uh, methodologies, uh, theologies, uh, how to apply uh, the practice of ministry, so to speak. But not uh, in helping students understand what makes a society tick in terms of its origins, its uh, cultural heritage, its intellectual foundations, uh, the way a society views itself and asking why do they view themselves like that? You know, why, how do they come up with that? Um, why do they behave and respond like that? Why do they think like that? And my uh, model, Terraculture, uh, aims to uh, bridge that gap by arguing that you need to understand a culture's um, orientation and to, in order to connect that to the gospel. Or in another way, how to connect the gospel to people's deepest aspirations and ideals, which I think is a uniquely cultural and to help them see how that connects with the gospel message. Wow, thank you for uh, sharing your insight, uh, Professor Yu, on your research process. And and the, I think you also briefly mentioned the methodology um, that you utilize uh, throughout this uh, book. And uh, the story of uh, doing research in the archives sounds very familiar for those um, who are into um, digging into archives as well. Um, your book um, has nine chapters and the numerous pictures richly illustrated and that put into perspective the history of Korean Christianity. 
Um, and I really enjoyed reading it. And now as we kind of dive into those specific chapters, in the, in the introduction, you begin by kind of laying the groundwork, um, the methodological framework to your book, how like in the field of world Christianity, we turn towards native perspectives for understanding the transmission of Christianity, you kind of aim to identify the formative local factors as a loci of Christian growth and the development in Korea. What I was fascinated by, and I think you briefly mentioned this, um, is your approach in utilizing terra culture or terra culturalism as a method to analyze local circumstances and patterns that create um, distinctive responses from the transmission of Christianity. Um, but for our audience that might be still unfamiliar to the term terra culture or terra culturalism, do you mind elaborating a little more on this concept, kind of what it entails, what this approach might be interested in, um, and how terra culturalism might be different than, let's say, contextualization, and how you were able to apply this uh, methodology throughout this book? Sure. Uh, the the word terraculture is a combination of the Latin words uh, terra, uh, meaning earth, and cultura, uh, meaning to till or cultivate. And the and the dictionary definition of terraculture is uh, cultivation of the earth. And uh, I think that correctly describes what happens when Christianity is introduced to a culture that there is a breaking and turning over earth. And uh, this is a crucial difference with other methodologies. Um, Terraculture acknowledges that the, co- the cross-cultural transmission of Christianity is dynamic and produces at times a chaotic, uh, messy, uh, non-linear, unexpected results. Uh, because, uh, precisely because there is a constant uh, breaking and turning over the earth. Uh, methodologies and approaches um, assume patterns, uh, organization, and structure. And terraculture says that we shouldn't presume predictable patterns. Why? Because um, how can you make a pattern or prediction when you are introducing a new foreign religious element into a soil. And I'm not that smart enough to know what would happen next. Um, Terraculture rejects the notion that uh, cultures are static or some form of tabula rasa or or blank slate, where uh, cultures are like uh, blank canvases. And I think um, some people have kind of approached the missional uh, enterprises with that kind of thinking. But uh, I would say that cultures have thick, are thick with layers and layers of histories, formations, uh, traditions, religions, uh, heritages, uh, customs already uh, there functioning alive and well. Uh, and uh, cultures uh, have their hotspots or very sensitive areas, as well as um, cultures have their deserts and their springs. Uh, also, some you know um, 
areas where they don't go to. <laughs> uh, areas that uh, are unknown. And um, with this kind of a rich canvas that is alive and well, you are introducing a new foreign element into that mix. And uh, the interaction will cause a reaction and, and sometimes a combustion. So it is not a surprise at all that a, a cultural soil may challenge, oppose, or resist the introduction of this foreign substance into their midst. And uh, furthermore, the new foreign substance uh, may have significant implications for their culture, society, and government. Because each culture uh, or soil is unique, uh, when the seeds of Christianity are planted there, you just don't know what will happen uh, when the seeds start to grow on that foreign uh, cultural soil. So uh, terraculture is a different way um, we look at how Christianity interacts with culture. Um, terraculture rejects the idea that evangelism or missions uh, is a neat, organized, and predictable uh, process. Uh, the transmission um, often results in a clash, a clash of strong ideas. And, uh, and terraculture aims to kind of understand that. And it can kind of uh, lead to a whole host of uh, hostile reactions um, that can easily uh, lead to persecution. And, and in the New, in New Testament church, uh, the execution of believers. Uh, so the transmission of Christianity, um, I believe, is a dynamic process. That is a two-way street. Uh, in which uh, the seeds of Christianity are merging, uh, interacting, uh, mingling, um, merging together with uh, the layers of that existing soil. And, and what, what may happen, uh, because the seed is now growing in that unique soil, you, you might not know what may grow from that. And then for those who study uh, missiology or uh, world Christianity, um, terraculture may sound a lot like uh, contextualization. Uh, while there are some similarities, there are uh, differences. Uh, one big difference is that um, contextualization contextualizes. Uh, its job is to theologize and to contextualize the gospel to a given culture. Uh, on the other hand, the aim of terraculture is not to contextualize, uh, but rather to uh, examine and understand a culture from its historical and philosophical roots. And then to explain and to reveal uh, the points of contact uh, between Christianity uh, and that culture. And kind of let God do the rest. You know, as uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted the seed, uh, Apollos uh, watered it, but God gave it the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 
So I believe that um, the the the, the terricultural model um, uh, allows space, gives space for the Holy Spirit to work uh, in that process. And in doing so, uh, I think that we are um, respecting both the gospel and that culture. And uh, you are giving um, the receiving culture um, the space to reflect and to process the claims of the gospel on their own cultural terms. That you're, you're not prescribing anything on them, but you're kind of saying, you know, here are the points of contact here. These, this is how the gospel relates to your culture and how the gospel answers, uh, fulfills, uh, connects uh, to what you've been aspiring. And so if everything is like neatly organized with preset notions, um, there is little room for them to be inspired um, to, to own their Christianizing process. And, uh, and I believe that terraculture kind of uh, uh, enables because you're letting them kind of process it on their own terms that it's real for them. Um, and so it's not like uh, um, Western patterns being imposed, uh, prescribed for them. And when you look at its um, uh, implication, it, you know, the, the terror cultural model can be very unsettling because um, you're kind of opening yourself up for potentially uh, wild situations and opening up uh, yourself for things to go sideways. And so there needs to be a, uh, a comfort level with, with chaos, for lack of a better word. There needs to be some comfort level for for you to get very surprised, and um, it is not the, the terror culture is not pointing to a set goal, so to speak, but it's kind of leaving things um, open ended. Um, and so, because um, you're only like pointing to how this relates, and you're uh, allowing them to work through how it interplays with their own uh, terms, ideas, uh, their, um, their models, uh, their worldview, their outlook. And, and you're kind of trusting God in that process to help them discern uh, the interaction. And so for terraculture, the historiographical uh, study of a culture becomes crucial, uh, very, very important. And uh, terraculture does this by uh, examining uh, native cultural belief systems uh, to study its origins and to kind of um, really understand uh, what makes them tick, to kind of study the essence of the culture and how that is lived out, how people struggle with that. Uh, how people struggle to um, fulfill that mandate. And, um, you know, every culture has its own cultural mandates. 
and uh, well, you know, uh, most of them, most people are not like uh, cognizant of those mandates, but they exist, and we kind of live through uh, that lens. And so, uh, terror culture really wants to understand that lens and kind of see uh, the points of contact uh, with the gospel message. And so, the um, understanding the cultural formations is an absolute must. And so, because it identifies uh, the culture's uh, highest ideals, its highest uh, aspirations. Uh, its deepest uh, fears, um, the deepest uh, struggles, um, and kind of uh, uh, examining and understanding that. And I think, um, you know, if, if, if uh, you're planning to spend time in a foreign country to for missions or evangelism, I think it's very worthwhile to spend serious time and effort to uh, engage that culture at a deeper level. Mm. Wow. Um, thank you, Professor Yu, for that very thorough answer. I think um, you shared with us um, the kind of um, different perspectives and the advantages and also uh, in somewhat the vulnerability um, that, you know, terraculturalism or terraculture brings forth what this methodology kind of calls for as well. And I think you succeed uh, marvelously in utilizing this, uh, this pers- new perspective in kind of uh, helping us to retrace uh, Korean Christianity. But when we also talk about um, the history of Christianity in Korea, I know we cannot avoid um, talking about its complex relationship with Confucianism. I think your own research and your background and your mentor has also kind of highlighted this as well. But um, you, you've also tried to unravel this complexity in the beginning chapters of your book. Um, Confucianism, in a way, you know, could be a key in understanding Korean Christianity as well. Um, then in your opinion, can you tell us about, you know, Confucianism or Neo-Confucian- Neo-Confucianism in Korea and the influence of Confucianism on Korean Christianity, how um, Confucianism shaped the development of Korean Christianity? And I think um, you mentioned how Confucianism provided the fertile soil in which to sow seeds of Christian principles. How do you interpret the relationship uh, between the two? Yes, I'm really glad that you brought up that quote, um, that you cannot really understand uh, Korean soil, for that matter, uh, the East Asian uh, cultural soil, uh, Korea, China, and Japan, without understanding Confucianism, or to be precise, uh, Neo-Confucianism. And um, it is well established in East Asian studies, um, that Confucianism uh, was the the system of intellectual thought that united um, East Asia and Vietnam in the pre-modern period. That uh, that Confucianism was uh, the lingua franca uh, that kind of uh, was kind of the diplomatic language, uh, was the rituals that kind of united uh, these cultures uh, in the pre-modern period. Um, and in the Korean context, um, and that nothing has influenced more uh, than Confucianism. Um, and uh, Koreans have been earnestly 
been trying to become better and better Confucians for more than 500 years. And, um, and Ted DeBerry, my mentor at Columbia, noted how um, the Confucianizing process in Korea went far beyond what the Chinese did and how the Confucianizing process in Korea uh, took on an evangelical zeal uh, in a religious tone. And I think the, uh, the religious characteristic of Korean Confucianism is often missed by Koreans uh, today in their understanding of Confucianism. And that, um, that in other words, um, that there was uh, no ceiling uh, in how much you could do. That under uh, Confucian influence, uh, there was never a point in which uh, you you could say that you did enough. That there is never a point in which uh, that you can say I finished. That it's uh, never never ending. Uh, there was always more that you could do, and you can still see that in Korean culture today. Um, so there was never enough. Uh, you could always do more sacrifice, or in the modern context, you could always do more studying, uh, more ethical training, uh, more devotion. Uh, you can see that in Korean Christianity today, that there's you could never do enough devotion, right? Uh, that you could um, uh, never uh, be rigorous enough. You could always do more. And, um, and that is very Confucian uh, way of thinking. And um, back in the day, um, enthusiasm for Confucianism was very much uh, uh, encouraged. Um, and, and, that's, and that sounds a little weird for people, you know, enthusiasm for Confucianism. And the more enthusiastic um, you became about Confucianism, the better person they thought you were. Uh, so um, Confucianism was not just uh, a scholarly exercise, but a belief system deliberately, intentionally uh, meant to produce uh, deep emotional responses. Uh, we don't, you know, uh, have we don't have time today, but you can see, at least I do, uh, Confucian influence today in modern Korean society. Uh, for example. Like uh, take um, Korean dramas on TV. Like uh, every country in the world produces their own TV dramas, but yet why are Korean dramas more popular from this uh, little country? Uh, what what makes them stand out? Um, and I would say it's because of the remnants of uh, Confucian culture uh, and uh, the key elements that Confucian culture uh, embraced uh, and celebrated, it comes through uh, uh, in um, Korean dramas. And so uh, Confucianism has been deeply infused uh, into the Korean soil. Um, the Confucian sensibilities, you know, you just can't get rid of 500 years of deep uh, Confucian embedding overnight. Um, while a lot of it has been stripped away, but there's still uh, some uh, elements still existing. Uh, 
um, you know, like the notion of sacrifice, you know, um, the deep emotional attachment to your family, um, you know, uh, that sense of uh, idealism. Um, and so the Confucian culture in pre-modern uh, Korea was um, designed to be intense. Uh, it's supposed to be intense. It's supposed to be uh, very demanding uh, of yourself and in some ways um, to be punishing uh, because uh, moral perfection is hard and the pursuit of moral, moral perfection uh, pushed you hard. Um, and that um, in Korea, um, uh, at that time, everyone was supposed to be pursuing moral perfection. And, uh, and that is a struggle. It's a, um, it's a hard process. And um, so in other words, uh, the Confucian culture produced uh, a lot of uh, pent-up energy, uh, produced a lot of uh, pent-up uh, emotional charge uh, inside of them. Um, and um, uh, it, it's uh, ready, ready to kind of explode, if you will. And then, um, and then you introduce uh, seeds of um, Christianity into that soil, and uh, and then there was an ignition. <laughs> there, there, there was some, definitely uh, ignition, and it. And you know, when I read the uh, missionary literature, you know, people were baffled. Uh, they they could not, they did not quite know what to make of the situation. Like something just triggered. Right. And uh, people start behaving in really odd, but yet fantastic and extraordinary ways. And uh, something got ignited and wildfire happened. And uh, and this is a unique uh, to the Korean situation. And my book um, sort of uh, attempts to try to uh, explain that through how Confucianism kind of readied uh, for that encounter. Mm -hmm. oh, thank you for that um, detailed response on Confucianism. I myself can highly resonate on some of, you know, the Confucianist, uh, Confucianistic um, traditions and also mindset and the way of life, even in my own family as well. Um, uh, even though, you know, our family is a Christian, um, it's there, there's, uh, there's these moments or there are these notions of Confucianism in all parts of life for Koreans as well. Um, uh, and, you know, as you were saying that, um, yeah. it, uh, reminded me of, uh, um, you know, when I was in uh, Princeton seminary, um, Samuel Moffitt was still there on campus. Uh, he didn't teach any courses, but he was there every day. Um, he was finishing up his second volume, uh, History of Christianity in Asia. And uh, he would often go to uh, the cafeteria and we would have uh, conversations. And he, he told me one time that, you know, uh, half jokingly that, like, if you scratch the uh, skin of a uh, Korean Christian, uh, underneath the skin, you'll find a Confucian. <laughs> thank you for that um uh insight on 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 your um 
conversation with um, pr- um, Professor Moffat as well. I mean, it's I think those moments are very precious as well. Um, you're you're taking in a part of history too. Um, as also a current student at Princeton Theological Seminary, we hear a lot about uh, Professor Moffat as well. But thank you for sharing that with us today. Um, oh yeah, and and for uh, uh-huh. all of your listeners, um, Sam Moffat was uh, born in Pyongyang. Mm. Um, and his father was a pioneer uh, uh, a missionary there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, thank you, Professor Yu. And a kind of, if I may, kind of a follow-up question in regards to Confucianism. And you know, you've you've highlighted how Confucianism is, in a way, kind of a way of life too for for Koreans in general. And I really appreciated how you highlighted the connection between the Confucianism. Uh, Confucian veneration for learning to how Protestant missionaries were able to introduce Christianity as a religion that you know is highly esteemed and uh, has esteemed sacred writing and learning, um, kind of utilizing uh, a, and noticing how Confucianism uh, took part and played a role in Korean society, and these missionaries were able to introduce Christianity um, in a way that seemed. Uh, as a as a great um, religion, um, something that everybody should pursue and learn and you know uh, read and write about it. Um, do you mind talking a little more on this issue on Korea's Confucian culture of learning and how that kind of complemented the missions approach that Protestant missionaries took, uh, which would also lead you know later on to the grassroots literacy movement? I'm sure. Um... You know, when um, uh, American missionaries um, went to Korea, um, I don't. I think that they took for granted how much of their own um, uh, method relied on education, uh, or, or at least a formal education. I don't. Uh, I don't think they like consciously knew that education played such a uh, essential role uh, in uh, in their missional approach uh, for example like you could not be a Christian if you could not read uh, because the missionaries expected uh, you know believers to read the Bible uh, missionaries expected believers to read and memorize scripture uh, and uh, they had it set up whereby um, you could not be a member of the church unless you memorize scriptures and memorize parts of the doctrine of the church and so reading was you could not be a Christian without knowing how to read and so um, this was a like they didn't even think about it. This was kind of like an assumed thing of being a Christian. And so, if um, missionaries encountered illiterate people, they taught them how to read so that they could understand Christianity. And uh, one of the most common methods of uh, evangelism was uh, distributing tracts. And uh, on back of these tracts uh, was uh, Hangul or the Korean alphabet. Uh, and it was printed on the back of the track so that the evangelists or the Korean Bible women or uh, traveling preachers, so that if they in in the process of preaching the gospel, if they didn't know how to read, that they would teach them. 
And so evangelism uh, was kind of meshed in together with a reading campaign, literacy campaign. And, um, and at the same time, um, I don't think uh, the missionaries had a really strong grasp of the fact that, that they were in a uh, Confucian society that highly prized education. Um, that uh, I don't think they really understood how deeply wedded uh, the notion of education was to the people. Um, you know, for the the lowest classes, they were illiterate. They were illiterate. Uh, you know, and so it's uh, they uh, they weren't expected to read. So it's easy to think that you know education might uh, wasn't that highly regarded with. Um, uh, with people, but they were, but that was a, definitely a false idea. And education at that time was uh, exclusive uh, arena for the the wealthy uh, and the privileged. And so, in that context, here comes a religion that is educating you. So here comes a religion that tells you that, like. In order to be a Christian, you got to know how to read. You got to be educated. You got to, uh, it's telling you that, uh, uh, that reading about this person, Jesus, is going to save you. And so the education uh, with the Christianity together, I think that was a profound uh, terracultural connection. And that in in a traditional Confucian culture, uh, education uh, was a key. And that in traditional Confucian culture, not anymore today, but the teacher was one of, if not the most respected person in your community. Uh, The teacher was highly, highly revered. Um, And that education was the key to your moral perfection, was key to moral excellence, which was the end goal. And so uh, education was a necessity, but for a lot of people, uh, they were not able to receive education. And now here comes Christianity that says that um, you can gain salvation, uh, you can know God, uh, through this sacred text. Um, and in other words, that you uh, need to be educated about this God. And so, um, and, you know, in the book, you know, the talk, it, it gives many, many examples of how people just went nuts. They just went crazy over the prospects of education. Um there are many, many stories of missionaries. They're telling the people, "Hey, look, you know, we're uh, we want to build a school. Uh, we want to build a school for girls. Uh, we want to do uh, build this." And then it was a pandemonium um, that people would start, you know, selling their cow. Women would cut off their hair. Uh, I mean, that it just created a combustion. Um, and the Confucian culture, and so it, it, it produced an emotional response. And, what, and that is a Confucian thing. Uh, and so uh, the Confucian culture promoted a, an eagerness 
for learning and for the love of learning and you know um and and i think that part is still with koreans uh korean society today and you kind of see that with other uh asian cultures uh, that learning is uh, uh, highly respected, highly pursued, and from a secular sense, uh, learning and education is key to success. Because um, for Korea uh, and China, uh, that you need to be highly educated to pass the civil service examination, which was um, the gateway to uh, success to work in the government. And so you needed to be highly educated. And so missionaries came to that um, came to that culture that highly prized learning uh, and introduced a religion that had sacred writing uh, that is the Bible and that you know in Confucian culture they had their own sacred writing uh, so there were many parallels um, with the Confucian culture and the Christian culture and that and it, and it unleashed uh, an emotional um, outpouring. And it kind of um, reminds me of a story uh, told by a missionary that um, he uh, introduced a uh, young Korean man uh, to Christianity and gave him uh, the New Testament to read. And so he took it home um, and uh, he came back a few days later and uh, the man, uh, the young man said that he read it with so much interest that he memorized the entire New Testament to memory. Um, now, now, the missionary, of course, you know, never told him to do that, but, but that was a Confucian thing to do. That if you, have a, um, if you have a sacred text, you memorize it. You, you kind of like uh, really soak it into the way you think. You kind of live it out. And you memorize it. You think about it. Um, in Confucian culture, there's this thing called a quiet sitting. You kind of internalize the message. Uh, which is a, the Confucian way of learning. You internalize a message, and that is exactly what he did. He kind of took it home and memorized it. And the, uh, the Confucian culture really emphasized, like, memory. Uh, and so, um, and, uh, and you kind of like see that in that example. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. Uh, thorough answer and also for that uh, great example of how um, learning played uh, and education plays an important role um, in Korean society and Korean Christianity. Now, uh, kind of trying to shift gears here and in talking about the religious landscape of Korea, um, even before Christianity had set foot on the Korean peninsula, the people, the people of Korea were deeply entrenched in a kind of spirit-filled world that governed the people's welfare. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the struggles that early missionaries also faced as they encountered traditions of, you know, appeasing the spirits um, and how 
what were the roles of the shamans or how shamanism uh, played uh, a big important aspect in Korean society and its and the various fetishes. And in the midst of this, um, you've you've also dedicated a whole chapter on on this. But what were the roles of the Korean Bible woman? Um, I believe that you know this is indeed important because uh, this spiritual reality is not only of the past but still highly relevant in the contemporary Korea. So, um, do you mind sharing with us a little bit about this as well? Sure. Um, when um, uh, missionaries arrived in Korea, they were just uh, shocked at the supernatural reality that Koreans lived in. And I think, you know, for us moderns, um, it's very difficult for us to conceive of that reality. And, you know, as you mentioned, um, there are still remnants of that uh, still today in Korea. Um, But at the turn of the 20th century, Korean culture was still soaked very much with uh, supernatural beings, uh, entities, and spirits. Uh, that must be appeased uh, or else. And so uh, not so much uh, veneration, but Koreans uh, lived in constant fear uh, of these creatures, of uh, what they might do. Uh, So there was a lot of fear and trepidation about uh, not wanting to offend them uh, not wanting to uh, provoke them to anger. And so they uh, did a lot of things to appease them, like um, have fetishes uh, all around, uh, put small fetishes uh, all around their house um, to protect themselves, to appease um, gods, appease uh, demonic spirits. And um, they, in addition to that, uh, missionaries found uh, ancestor shrines everywhere from the local level to the national level. A lot of of talk uh, about ghosts uh, and apparitions. Uh, Wherever they traveled, um, the missionaries found uh, very scary-looking totem poles, um, which were there to uh, ward off uh, evil spirits. And um, there were uh, everywhere in Korea, uh, sorcerers, uh, shamans, uh, diviners on the streets, uh, offering their services. Um, You know, dreams uh, were, dreams at night were spiritual signs uh, that people like uh, really believed in, that took seriously. Uh, supernatural omens were everywhere, and they were uh, perceptive to them. And uh, um, a Christian writer who visited uh, Korea said that um, that Korea was uh, thickly inhabited with spirits and invisible creatures, uh, and uh, and that was true. Um, that there is a lot of literature uh, of uh, observers uh, in Korea who notice all these things, these, uh, a belief in the supernatural world uh, weighing heavily 
uh, upon uh, Korean uh, hearts and minds. And, um, and of course, you know, coming from uh, uh, Western culture, uh, the missionaries did not really believe in them, so to speak. And so missionaries uh, attacked them as paganistic, uh, heathen, demonic, superstition, you know, something that needed to be eliminated, to be cleansed. But they didn't quite um, develop a theological framework uh, that countered the spiritual world. In other words, they didn't, like, take it seriously enough to give a, uh, like, a theological response um, to address these very deep concerns. And so I think the... um, the supernatural reality was definitely uh, a terracultural moment that uh, that could have definitely been addressed by um, relating uh, scripture or the gospel to that really deep-seated fear. And so the missionaries uh, condemned it, uh, but uh, they did not address how uh, their lived experience uh, relates to the gospel. Um, and so the Koreans were in constant fear of demons, uh, goblins, or tokpaki, uh, evil spirits. And so, um, and so the terracultural uh, moment, like uh, for a lot of Koreans, was we have we believe in a pantheon of gods. You know, we have so many gods. Who is your god? Like, is your God better or stronger than the ones we've been worshiping? And um, that question was kind of on the on the back of their minds um, because they already were had a very uh, vibrant, so to speak, vibrant uh, um, religious life. And so you have someone saying, "Hey, we have this new God." And so they were wondering, okay, uh, how, how does it fare uh, in relation to these gods? And so uh, is the new god any better than what they got? And so in order for them to be persuaded, um, the, the superiority of the Christian god must be demonstrated because they were so de- uh, devotedly following the rituals of this God, you know, just intellectually arguing about it is not enough. So just making a, um, uh, like a theological argument is not enough because in their lived experience that they were already uh, very much into practicing their own gods. So it's not, it cannot be just an intellectual matter, that it must be demonstrated for them to be convinced. And so um, back, in the, back in the day, um, Koreans attributed tremendous uh, respect to, to those who can drive out uh, demonic spirits. Um, and that um, demon possession was, um, was real. Uh, was real and the Koreans every Korean knew it was real 
Uh, and uh, I remember uh, one missionary writing that uh, uh, that that Koreans were preoccupied with demons, and uh, he wrote that um, uh, that Koreans' preoccupation with uh, demons or demonology was the chief uh, problem in the country. And it kind of like uh, was a dark cloud uh, that hung over uh, Korean culture. And so, um, the, uh, as you know, the most popular uh, way to deal with this problem was shaman. And... Um, you know, uh, shamanistic exorcism still, you know, go on today in Korea, as you know. And um, uh, shamans uh, are intermediaries uh, between the material and uh, the spiritual world. And so they perform rituals um, to appease uh, demons. And so the shamans, um, they did not cast out uh Demonic spirits, uh, demonic spirits in the biblical sense, but rather uh, a series of rituals. She contacts uh, the spirit realm by making offerings, uh, paying homage, uh, entertaining, uh, worshiping, uh, dancing, and uh, praying and pleading. Uh, for uh, the demonic spirit to leave. And so um, when Christianity uh, arrived on the scene, uh, you can just imagine uh, the reaction of Koreans who witnessed that this uh, Christian God has authority over demons and evil spirits. They have never seen anything like this in their lives. This was a, a combustion. Uh, this was uh, this was earth-shattering. Like this was such a preoccupation in their minds and now here comes what the missionaries are saying is the one true God who has authority and power over uh, demonic spirits. This was, uh, it, it, it was a phenomenal it was never seen before. And so, um, and you see this um, in, in their writings that um, when Koreans uh, witnessed how this Christian God uh, drove out, cast out the demonic spirit, that was enough for them to convert. And so after they seen, after they seen the power of the Christian God demonstrated uh, that that was enough, and many families instantly uh, became Christians because they seen it in a real way. And um, uh, and you know, few missionaries, you know, could have imagined that their um, uh, that their ability to drive out demons uh, would be such a powerful way for people to become Christians. Um, and of course, you know. Um, Missionaries, uh, they were never trained in how to deal with demons, right? No, no seminary in America teaches a, a class about demonology. And, um, uh, and one of the um, 
the big uh, uh, forces to in, in this movement were you know Bible women, Korean Bible women, um, and uh, they were uh, going from village to village to province to province. Uh, they became fearless preachers, and they fearlessly uh, helped drive out uh, demons, uh, and they became legendary. Uh, so legendary that um, when people encountered uh, demon possession or a severe illness, they uh, they called for a Bible one to come, which I which in my mind spoke uh, a lot about what people thought of the. Uh, the power of Bible woman. Um, and so, and, uh, and the demonstration, uh, uh, that revelation uh, that revealed um, how the Christian God is superior to what they've been doing, what uh, they've been afraid of, uh, marked the decisive turning point for many Christians. Um, and so um, uh, many Christians, um, like the Bible woman, after they converted, uh, became um, active participants uh, in the deliverance uh, ministry. And so um, uh, Bible women were uh, lay women. You know, they were not clergy. And so commoners with little or no education now became uh, these um, ministers who exercise authority over demons. And this is, a, this is like a crazy idea that you have uh, these lay people uh, you know, going around um, preaching, uh, delivering people, uh, having authority over uh, the spirit world. Um, and so uh, there are many cases um, of uh, Bible women in the missionary literature, how um, these Bible women went to different villages, exercised the evil spirit, and how the whole village became Christian thereafter, um, and that they played a crucial role in, in showing uh, in, in real life the power of the gospel, and um, which is, I think, kind of uh, missing in today's church, um, that we don't really see it demonstrated uh, in real life uh, for how the Christian God is revealed in our day-to-day uh, -day lives. And so, um, uh, and another feature of the Korean Bible women was that uh, some of them were former shamans or mudang themselves. And that uh, they uh, been, uh, so there, there is amazing uh, uh, literature about them. Uh, and for one thing, they, um, they were practitioners, experts in these arts in their uh, previous lives. And so once they became Christians and then Bible women, you, you know, these were women who knew the secrets of uh, demonology before, but now they're going out and casting them out. Um, and so they were even more effective because they knew, uh, even at a deeper level, 
their, uh, their dealings with demons and communicating with them. And so they, they in, in reality, they switched sides and uh, they became powerful instruments of um, spiritual deliverance. And, um, and in the, my book, you know, I go over how these um, Bible women became specialists in exorcism and spiritual power. And that, um, uh, and, and as you uh, know, you know, they're not uh, widely known. Mm-hmm. Well, I personally considered this chapter in which you highlighted the Korean Bible women, I think one of the highlights in your book as well, because, and you just mentioned, you know, they're not, they're, a very much neglected aspect of Korean Christianity that needs to be highlighted. And I think more research needs to be done, I guess, not only on the Korean Bible women, but also Korean Christian women in general as well. Because, you know, as you see in the Korean church, uh, a lot of Korean women play an important role, a uh, vital role in the uh, inside the church as well. Um, but thank you for that um, elaborate and wonderful answer. You've given us uh, a kind of a perspective on understanding this uh, spiritual-filled world in, of Korea and how, uh, very interestingly, these uh, Korean Bible women, you know, um, played an important aspect, an important role uh, in the midst of Korean Christianity. But now kind of moving on towards the modern history of Korea, uh, we see uh, many f- key figures in Korea's movement towards independence uh, were Christians as well. Um, you have also rightly pointed out uh, the complexity that foreign missionaries brings in, brought in um, and their role in Korean history and its move towards independence and democracy. I'm wondering if you could talk about those missionaries' influences in Korean history. Um, I know you've, you've highlighted uh, uh, the missionary called Appenzeller. Um, you've also mentioned um, several others, but would you like to mention any more um, that uh, you highlighted in your book? And what were some of their indirect ways in which they informed notions of nationalism, democracy, and self-determination? Yes, um, uh, thank you for that question. And um, uh, I remember um, a quote by Robert Spear. Um, uh, at Princeton Seminary, we used to have uh, uh, the Spear Library before that was torn down, named after Robert Spear, the missionary statesman. And uh, he did a lot of tours uh, around the world. And uh, when he came to Korea, he was uh, surprised Um that uh, uh, that among Korean Christians, uh, Korean uh, patriotism and Korean nationalism was uh, very strong with the church, with the Korean Christians. Uh, like, uh, and the two <laughs> went uh, almost uh, uh, hand in hand. Um, Christianity and uh, nationalism, uh, and uh, and one of the things that he um, found, I guess, um, kind of odd was that um, when he toured Korea and saw Christian homes, they would have a, a Christian flag uh, at their homes, and. Uh, you know, the missionaries, they never told them to do that, but it just was a natural outgrowth 
And I would say that is kind of a, a terricultural uh, outgrowth that that was totally unexpected. And I think for many missionaries, that was very undesired because this was the era of a Japanese colonialism. And they, and so these Korean Christians were becoming more nationalistic and which could really get them in trouble. And so, but at the same time, um, that Koreans were drawn to Christianity because of its nationalistic impulses. And so uh, Koreans um, saw Christianity um, as a hope for national independence. And they come to understand that um, that Christ was the one that who could intervene for their country. And so uh, nationalistic aspirations became a gateway for them to become Christians, which is something the missionaries would not approve of. But it happened. And... Um, uh, during the Japanese colonial period, you know, no missionaries would would dare uh, promote uh, independence and national. It was a very sensitive time. All of the mission boards like like demanded that their missionaries like stay away from this kind of talk, uh, this kind of rhetoric, uh, this kind of instruction um, to kind of keep Koreans away from nationalism and. Um, um, but that doesn't mean that they had no influence. Um, you know, when I was at uh, Princeton, uh, another conversation that um, Samuel Moffat, uh, he told me how um, in, in his uh, uh, house in Pyongyang that uh, his father would receive many, uh, many visitors, many uh, Korean leaders, church leaders. Uh, and he, he told me he spent a lot of time with Gil. Uh, 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 forgot his full name. Kid is some. Do you remember his name? Yeah, him, right. Him. Yes, Kid Sanju. And so, uh, and then, um, of course, uh, uh, a lot of discussions were about the church theology and so forth. But they also talked about, you know, uh, democracy, and um, they were exposed to, you know, uh, American democracy. And um, uh, and what they understood, not just from Moffat, but from other missionaries, was that uh, the religion and the nation were woven together. Um, like today, um, Americans uh, would not think of it like that, but back in the early 20th centuries, um, I would say... Uh, most, if not all, the missionaries understood Christianity as uh, as woven very much together with the American nation, and they attributed the success of America to Christianity. Uh, and so, um, missionaries at the same time should not be um, greatly surprised that. Koreans really picked this up and ran with it. 
because this was this was um this was like very natural in their way of thinking for the missionaries um and that uh, um it was you know uh in this was a kind of like their uh, assumptions the missionaries assumptions uh, that they carried around that um uh that uh, these western nations have become great because of christianity if you uh want your nation to be great that christianity needs to be embraced that's that was kind of the assumption and i think korean christians uh really picked up on that and then you know there were um uh other missionaries who were just out blindly uh, pro-independence, pro-Korean nationalism. And uh, like, for example, like as you mentioned, uh, Appenzeller, uh, he was at the, uh, the cornerstone dedication uh, ceremony for the uh, uh, independence arch in Sodemungu um, uh, near uh, Yonsei University. And uh, so he was there at the dedication. Uh, Appenzeller um, uh, was also the founder of uh, Beje Academy, which was a, a, a high school. And uh, you know, um, someone needs to you know do a book on Appenzeller because he was a he was a little nuts because um, at the, his uh, school he he. He trained the boys in, in military uh, preparation, in political activism, uh, intellectual uh, engagement. Uh, he knew that this was something that would really get him in trouble, but he, he did everything. And uh, he, he, I remember um, that he uh, hired uh, uh, a sergeant from the U.S. Marines who came over every afternoon to drill uh, his students. Uh, and um, like his uh, military drills in the academy was so, became so popular that other like uh, 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 private schools around the country now began to uh, adopt uh, military uh, drills as part of their academic training. Um, and uh and later on, that Koreans themselves uh, began to do this uh, uh, military drills uh, on their own. And that, um, uh, and so in Korea at that time, no one else was doing this except the Christians. Um, and and you can say that the Korean Christians, more than any other uh, group in the country, were uh, were most Westernized, um, uh, most exposed to Western ideas, um, uh, Western ways, uh, Western methods, uh, and they were just ahead of the game at the time from any other group that was still kind of living uh, in the pre. Uh, modern uh, mindset and so um and like for example uh, at Peja academy um that uh, appenzeller uh and the teachers uh, they uh push the students to uh public speaking and public debating uh arguing like uh, um like basically becoming activists becoming leaders 
uh, other people. Um, and, and the fact that um, when the 1919 uh, March 1st independence movement came around, and uh, the Korean Declaration of uh, Independence uh, was distributed, uh, that among the 33 signers uh, of that declaration, that uh, 16 were Christians. Um, so, which is shocking when you consider that it was only like a, a few percentage points of the population were Christians, but it kind of shows to the extent to which how uh, uh, Christians were a big part of the movement. And so, um, uh, and, and Japanese authorities were very hypersensitive to the uh, Christians uh, and to missionaries because they realized very early on that they were kind of movers and shakers, a lot of these movements. And, um, and in the book, it goes into how they were persecuted severely uh, during the colonial era. Yeah. Well, um, thank you, Professor Yu, for that detailed um, uh, insight into how, you know, politics, you know, religion doesn't play, isn't, um, doesn't have clean borders in a way, um, as, you know, uh, Christianity in, in case of Korea was very highly um, fluid in, in being related to politics, nationalism, and also religion itself, and um, how these missionaries also played a crucial role um, in a way um, in helping Koreans uh, move towards independence and democracy. Um being aware of the time, I still wanted to ask this question before we move into the final phase um, in today's interview, and that is um, going into um, how Korean Christianity also formed outside of Korea. Um, I've done a, I've done some readings on, on this a little, and this really fascinated me about um, learning about this. But um, you highlighted um, towards the last chapter of your book as you retrace the Korean American history and the growth of Korean immigrant churches in Hawaii. Um, for those that might be unfamiliar with history of Korean Christianity, you provide such a rich insight to the vibrancy of Korean Christians in Hawaii, uh, along with a snapshot of immigrant churches uh, post-1965 era. Um, as you repeatedly kind of emphasized throughout this chapter, this concluding chapter, the Korean church really truly served as a, quote, pseudo-extended family and as the most important institution for Korean immigrants here in the United States. Um, may I ask, in your current research and personal experiences, um, do you still find this to be the case? And, and what lessons can the Korean immigrant churches learn from the history of Korean Christianity? Uh, yes, um, you know, just from my own experience, um, I had the opportunity to travel, uh, you know, some of the big cities in the U.S., you know, New York City, Philadelphia, uh, Boston, you know, Chicago, uh, L.A., San Francisco, and, and you know, you would, you would expect to find um, uh, many uh, Korean immigrant churches there, but what surprised me was that uh, when I traveled to small cities, that there were uh, many uh, immigrant churches as well. And so, um, uh, and as I explore in the book, that the church is not 
just a church, uh, but in many ways a community center. Um, and uh, it, it serves uh, many different functions, um, and which are not uh, unusual. You, you know, um, when you when I um, study immigrant uh, religious institutions, whether they be you know Protestant, Catholic, Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist, they kind of uh, become a community center for that ethnic group. And um, immigrants uh, turn to churches uh, as a community, um, and um, as you know, they they are really foreigners in a new country, and they seek the familiar customs, uh, culture, security, and comforts of home, and they find that in their uh, religious institution, and um, but. One of the particular things about um, uh, about the Korean immigrant context is that um, the relationship between um, the immigrant church and the second generation uh, is quite uh, contentious. Uh, there is quite a bit of uh, tension there, and. Um, you know, like uh, uh, I lived for a very long time in uh, New Jersey, um, and and uh, uh, the greater New York City area is uh, um, the second largest Korean uh, community uh, population-wise in the United States, and so you have like over a hundred Korean churches there, uh, hundreds, I should probably say. And, um, but, um, uh, there's, there's, uh, less than 10 second generation churches that are fully independent. And so there is a big discrepancy. So you have so many, um, uh, Korean children who grew up in the church, but, there's a there's a problem, and it hasn't been uh, sorted out. Uh, there's a that's a big uh, opportunity lost there, I think, and um, and and uh, actually one of the projects that I'm working on right now is um, is a book called um, From the Grassroots: uh, A History of uh, Asian American Christianity. Uh, which uh, chapter deals with uh, the issues uh, in the second generation. Uh, in, in particular, the issue of uh, race and ethnicity that uh, the second generation church leaders haven't quite um, meaningfully addressed this issue. Um, and it is, it is not really a surprise that um, they haven't because seminaries don't address this at all. Um, you know, um, uh, you know, certainly from my experience, from my seminary education, and from a lot of my peers, they never uh, took one single course uh, that addresses the Asian American context, and so they go into ministry uh, with no background, no exposure, no, no education uh, to how the dynamics 
uh, and the issues facing second generation Asian Americans uh, respond to. And like, for example, you know, the the issues with uh, uh, Asian Americans have become a, a hot topic in the last, uh, you know, six months. And um, it's hard for church, uh, the second generation church leaders to come up with anything because they really haven't thought this through other than the most popular response is um, that we need to be uh, multi-ethnic, um, but which in effect really cancels out. It, uh, it doesn't affirm who we are. It, it, it doesn't affirm uh, our ethnic heritage, but just says you need to push that aside and accept that we are all multi-ethnic. Um, you know, if uh, and the weird thing is that um, Asian Americans, they go to Asian American churches because it's Asian American. They could go to any church, but they go there because it affirms them. And so instead of being a negative, I think uh, we need to develop something that is affirmative, that uh, uplifts uh, their uh, ethnic heritage. Mm. Wow. Well, Professor, you um, thank you for that insight into kind of putting into perspective current the current situation as well um, and the contemporary. And I'm very grateful very grateful for you investing your time today in this interview. Um, and I know you briefly mentioned about your project, but another final question that I asked my guest is, um, do you mind sharing with us what you're working on now? I, I know you briefly mentioned it, but if you want to la- elaborate a little bit more about that and other future projects that, uh, or, or, or works that you, might, you hope to work on in the near future, if you would like to share about that, that would be great. Oh, sure. Um, just this month, um, a book chapter of mine um, in, in a uh, book anthology titled uh, The Practice of Mission and Global Methodism uh, was put out this month by Rutledge. And um, towards the um, end of uh, this year, a journal article in uh, the International Bulletin of Mission Research uh, will be published. Um, and the title is um, Revisiting uh, Lamin Sane's uh, Western Guild Complex from a Korean Grassroots Perspective. And so um, that article kind of explores how uh, uh, missional methodology can overcome um, the colonialist legacy uh, and kind of charts a new way forward uh, in terms of uh, evangelism and uh, missionary activity. And um, the, my current project is a book um, about a history of Asian American Christianity. And um, so far, uh, there are no uh, introductory books on uh, Asian American Christianity, which may come as a surprise to people. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm attempting to fill that gap. Wow, wow, Professor, you, um, those sounds like uh, great projects and very much needed um, at this at this 
time period as well. Um, and I want to thank you uh, once again for being on today's show. Um, and thank you all so much uh, for listening to today's episode in which we explored um, KLU's Understanding Korean Christianity, Grassroot Perspectives on Causes, Culture, and Responses, published by WIF and Stock Publishers in 2019. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi, and stay tuned uh, for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity. <music>